Okay, Jesse, last week was a Hollywood horror story. What do you have for me this time? When a woman in early 1900s Chicago demonstrates an incredible psychic gift that allows her to predict the deaths of her many husbands with chilling accuracy, soon community awe gives way to suspicion. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about multiple husbands, multiple bodies, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Guys, we are still doing stickers for Apple reviews specifically, but also Audible. So if you have left us one, definitely, definitely screenshot it and send it to us so we can thank you. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to our Patreon. The URL is patreon.com slash lovemurderpod. And you can learn all about the different tiers and all of the wonderful things that we send you and how you can get more involved in the Love Murder community. Absolutely. You guys have to see these sticker bundles. They're so darn cute. And that's for 10 plus, $10 plus, I think, a month. Yes. And bonus episodes. And next month, I am 100% putting out two bonuses. I actually fully intended to this month. But oh my goodness, Andy, it has been a crazy week. I was going to cover Diane Downs this week for Mother's Day. Again, happy upcoming Mother's Day to all of you moms and stepmoms and pet moms and grandmoms and aunts who are basically moms. But I decided to put Diane on the back burner for a little while. And I know that a bunch of you recommended her. So I apologize if you came. Looking forward to Diane today. She's still on the list. She's still but on she's the list. still on the list. And I can guarantee you will not be disappointed after you listen to today's jaw-dropping episode. <laughs> okay, so Andy, I have wanted to do this case for a very, very long time. And I was so correct about this one because I do think my favorite genre of serial killer, at least to research, obviously we don't like serial killers, is the early 1900s batshit crazy Black Widow kind of serial killer. Yes, yes, to a T. Yeah, so today we are going to say move on over, giggling granny, and meet our psychic psycho killer, a.k.a. the premonition poisoner, and who Marcus Parks at Last Podcast on the Left dubbed the Polish prognosticator. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> this is the story of Tilly Klimek. So the sources today are a great little book called The Premonition Poisoner by Charlize Ellis. And I also did check out last podcast on the left's 295th episode, which was 
all about Black Widows. And Marcus Parks, as usual, did a great job with that story. So (laughs) without further ado, let's get into this wacky world. Everyone in Little Poland, Chicago, knew who Tilly was. The squat, pretty unattractive woman had lived a hard life full of tragedy, though in her 40s, she looked at least a decade older. Death seemed to follow Tilly wherever she went. So familiar with the grim reality of watching those she loved shuffle off the mortal coil, it seemed she had almost made friends with the Reaper himself. Because Tilly always seemed to know when death was coming for someone or some creature. A little trigger warning, there might be a little animal death in this episode. Chessie. Well, it's not torture, but it's not pretty. I'm going to talk about it right now, in fact. Friends and acquaintance were pretty amazed at the accuracy of Tilly's predictions. She could point out to a stray dog and say to a neighbor, three days. And on the third day, boom, the dog would be discovered dead. And then, of course, there were the husbands and the other family members. But soon all made way for fear and ultimately suspicion. By the time Tilly's reign of terror was over, she and an accomplice may have murdered up to 20 people. Oh my goodness, Tilly. Yeah, so I think officially they say that she murdered somewhere definitely between five and seven. But even as I was writing this, I was losing count. So I think, Andy, while we're going through the story, we should make a little tally. A Tilly tally? A Tilly tally. And we'll list the definites and the maybes, possibly. And we'll see where we land on what the love murder Tilly tally is. So let's go back and talk about a wee baby Tilly. Otilia Burek was born on October 22nd, 1877, the first child born to parents Mikalina and Mikal during the chaotic period in Europe that preceded the First World War. Tilly was actually born into a world that was just chock full of death and violence. So it might have been a little bit of a flowery description in the intro on my part, but it was true. When Tilly was only two years old, the family's small village in eastern Poland was burned to the ground. Oh, God. Yep. And the family fled to Germany, where they resided for a couple years before moving on across the Atlantic to the good old U.S. of A., They first boarded a ship to New York City, and then following that, they took a train to Chicago. Now, the trip across the Atlantic that they took sounded absolutely horrifying. It was the era of tons of people being packed into tiny berths. There's a lot of Europeans leaving for the United States at that point just because it was like a powder keg going on at that time. So yeah, so there was just like, I guess, a ton of people on their boat and there was dysentery going through the ship. So there was diarrhea and vomit everywhere. Plus, they had four small children. Tilly was the oldest. And I think that they had four toddlers and infants, essentially. Now, I don't even like to take a long car trip with my children. So I can't imagine what that experience was like. However, when they made it to... Little Poland, Chicago, everything was significantly improved. Now, 
Andy has lived in Chicago. That's your hometown, essentially. Yeah, because my grandma's Polish. Exactly. And so you know that Chicago has an epic Polish community. So there was probably about 120,000 Poles living in Chicago already, even in the 1890s. Wow. Yeah. So I found out that it all started in 1860, actually, when one Polish resident opened a Polish-specific immigration agency advertising all of the perks of the new world, but with all of the customs and the culture of the old. And my own Polish ancestors came to the U.S., just a little after Tilly's parents came here, actually. And your people ended up in Chicago. My people actually ended up in western upstate New York. So think of the Buffalo, uh, Rochester area, which is really interesting, Andy, because those are the two regions that play Euchre. Oh, is it a Polish game? Well, I looked it up and I when I Googled it, it said that it was, I think, originally French. But I feel like there must be some Polish version and that's what we play because the big pockets of Euchre players are always in randomly Western New York in the Midwest, which is one thing Andy and I bonded over very early on. Also, guys, my great-grandparents were named Tilly and Gus. So I named my Stop. son. Yep, Tilly and Gus. And she was originally an Otilia as well. Wow. Mm-hmm. And we did end up, as I was growing up, my parents love to name our dogs after our ancestors and loved ones. So we had a pair of dogs named Tilly and Gus. And Tilly was a straight up murderer. Your dog? My dog, Tilly. And so is this Tilly. But I don't want to get into it too much because we got to talk about Tilly. So it's the late 1800s and things were actually looking up. Tilly's parents went on to have four more children, bringing the total up to eight. Jeez Louise. Yes, but sadly, two of the youngest children did pass away when they were little babies, pretty much. Third from last brother, Stanislav, died at two years old. And the last baby, Peter, passed away when he was only four months old. Oh, my God. I could not find the reasons for these deaths, nor how it affected Tilly. But I do imagine perhaps it's just another example of how prevalent death was in Tilly's time. For instance, like, God, if now if somebody loses a child, it's like the most horrific thing anyone could yeah. ever imagine. It yeah. happens more rarely, obviously, than it used to. Back in the day, it's like, eh, we lost another one. I guess we got to make a new farmhand. Yeah. Which I'm being a bit flip about it, but child mortality rates at the turn of the century were ridiculous. Only three out of five children survived to the age of five. So 60%. Whoa. So that means 40% died. Yeah. That's crazy. In 1895, when Tilly turned 18, her parents took her to a marriage broker who, a marriage broker is essentially a matchmaker. And this person paired Tilly with a man who seemed like a good fit based on background, religion, and interests. Oh, sounds fun. Sounds super sexy. His name was Joseph Mitkowitz. And after a whirlwind courtship, the two wed the same year. For the next 19 years, the couple actually seemed pretty happy. At least as happy as you can be in early 1900s Chicago trying to avoid being killed by any number of things as well as your children being killed. And Joseph and Tilly were actually pretty lucky in that regard. They welcomed two children, a boy named Joseph Jr. and a girl named Theophilia in 1896 and 1897, and both shockingly made it to adulthood. Oh, great. Good percentage. 
that's a hundred percent. That's crazy. The long marriage came to a tragic end, however, when Joseph fell ill and died very suddenly. According to his death certificate, the cause was heart trouble. It was indeed a matter of the heart that plagued and killed poor Joe, as many believe that Joseph was the first victim of Tilly's poisonous stew. Numero uno. Yep, we got one on the boards. Tilly was known as a great cook, and no one could resist her beef stew, which was allegedly how she delivered arsenic to her unfortunate loved ones. That's what they get for eating meat. Ha! It's early 1900s Little Poland in Chicago. I don't think there was a single vegan among them. Okay, so we now know that she killed Joseph. But of course, at the time, no one was the wiser. After all, the couple had been married for nearly 20 years with no problems. So nobody at this point suspected that Tilly was a murderer, but they did suspect something else. And this is a rumor that would persist for years until Tilly was apprehended. And this was the belief that Tilly was a psychic. Three days before Joseph died, Tilly allegedly told a friend that she knew exactly the day that he would pass away, and then she ended up being correct. The friend was shocked and told the whole neighborhood about Tilly's macabre premonition. Tilly also, and this I think is kind of funny, had gone to a fabric store sometime before Joe had passed, and she was purchasing some black cloth, and the shopkeeper was like, oh, this is some nice cloth. What is this for? And she said, oh, it's a mourning cloth. I'm a widow. And the shopkeeper said, oh, I'm so sorry. When did your husband pass? And she said, oh, 10 days from now. So she's like sprinkling it around like little sprinkles she's on a cupcake. sprinkling it down. So the shopkeeper's like, that's weird that you know that so exactly. So thusly in Little Poland, Tilly gained the reputation of being a sheptuha, which is a folklore-like term for a woman who has mystical powers of healing and premonition. So a sheptuha, which is spelled S-Z-E-P-2-U-C-H-A. Yeah, I read in the book it was pronounced Sheptuha, so hopefully I'm right. It translates as whisperer. It's a legend from mostly Eastern Poland, and many immigrants from the area still held deeply superstitious beliefs, including the existence of Sheptuhas, though the witch-like woman was supposed to dabble in healing magic rather than the dark magic that I think Tilly was conjuring over here. So what made Tilly start killing at the age of 37? Author Charlize Ellis contends that female serial killers, on average, begin killing closer to 40 years old, while male serial killers usually begin much earlier in their late 20s to early 30s. Another difference is that on the most part, female serial killers tend to kill those they know and are supposed to love. Generally, it's usually their partners and their own children. Whereas, as you guys probably know, male serial killers tend to target strangers. Female serial killers are also usually less likely to get caught, less likely to talk once they are caught, and more likely to be acquitted. At least back in the day, especially because there was still that prevailing notion in polite society that a woman couldn't be a killer. 
spoiler alert, she can, she will, she did, and we are going to have plenty of them on our show forever and ever. <laughs> okay, but my theory about why she started killing at 37 was because at that point, her kids were 17 and 18 and pretty much out of the house. And I, I think like a lot of empty nesters or soon to be empty nesters, she and her husband just didn't really have much in common anymore. They raised their kids. The kids are out of the house. Maybe she's like, I don't need them anymore. But they were very Catholic, so she couldn't divorce them. So Joe had to go in a different way, apparently. He had to go for good. For good. So others contend that maybe Joe number one, there's going to be a lot of Joes. She liked the Joes. Maybe Joe number one wasn't her first kill at all. Tilly often took in extended family members when they got sick. And only two years before Joe's death, a 16-year-old cousin named Stanley Zakzuski and his 23-year-old sister, Stell, had died under her care. So I also wonder about her little brothers, to be honest. So she was firstborn, and those little guys were number six and eight in birth order. So I imagine she had to be at least a preteen when they died. So I wouldn't put it past her to maybe have had a hand in their death, as serial killers do usually begin with either small children or elderly victims. Yeah, and animals. And animals, which... We're going to get more animals in this, too. So we're at five. Yes. I mean, I don't know. Do you think that we should put the cousins and the baby brothers and the maybes? Yeah. In any case, in January of 1914, Tilly became a widow for the first time and collected $1,000 in life insurance money, roughly $28,500 in today's money. Now, Tilly was having a grand old time. She had a nice little cushion of cash, and she was enjoying her reputation as a psychic. So it was actually after her first husband's death that she started predicting neighborhood pets' death. And mm -hmm. it wasn't limited to dogs. She also predicted some stray cats' death as well. Not cool. Whatever type of animal lover you are, whether you're team cat or team dog, she was doing it to both dirty. There's something for you. Yeah, there's something for you to be enraged about right now. <laughs> Not only was she getting the attention that she liked for people being amazed that she was predicting these deaths to such accuracy, she was also getting some power. Tilly was a manipulative, controlling woman who definitely wanted to be known in the community and wanting to be feared a little bit, I think. She started using her dark gift as like kind of a intimidation or bargaining chip with people in the neighborhood. At one point, she alleged to a butcher that evil might befall him if he overcharged her for the meat she used to cook her famous stews. Okay. And he was legit scared. He started giving her discounts. And then she pulled the same shit on the guy who delivered her ice. Apparently, he was getting to her at the end of his route. And she was complaining that some of her ice was melted by the time he arrived there. And she's like, I'd hate for anything to happen to you if my ice isn't frozen when you get here. Mm. Oh, my God. Tilly definitely liked the power, but she also liked men, especially when they could be cashed in for a nice little life insurance payout. She wasted exactly zero time getting remarried, and only weeks after Joe number one met his untimely demise, she got hitched to husband number two, 
a man who went down in history as either John or Joe Ruskowski. John Joe. On February 27th, 1914. So think about it. Joe number one, her beloved husband of 19 years, died in January. And by February 27th, she was already remarried. She's busy. Busy lady. Yeah. I'm just going to call him Joe number two to keep Tilly on theme here. Oh, I like John Joe. Okay. We'll call him John Joe. Despite the fact that John Joe had been in excellent health when they wed, Tilly began to tell people that she was concerned for her husband's health pretty much the day after the wedding. <laughs> like, get married. He's fine. He is in strapping good health. And she's like, I don't know. I'm a little worried, guys. I'm a little worried. A little worried about his health. I'm a little, a little worried. So she said... After, of course, that she made sure she was the beneficiary on his life insurance policy that he absolutely <laughs> had. She told people that on their very wedding night, she was struck by a horrible premonition. In it, she had a vision of her new husband as a corpse. This was a bad omen indeed. Lo and behold, Tilly was correct. Just as she had predicted, her new husband fell ill within a matter of months and was dead by May 20th, 1914. That's two husbands meeting their end in less than six months. She's starting to get addicted to it. She's starting to get that rush. She is. This time she netted Joe number two's $1,200 inheritance and about $730 in life insurance money. So it was basically double her payout from Joe number one. So she's addicted to most likely the killing at this point, but also the moolah. The cashola. Now, at this point, she could have just sat back and enjoyed the fruits of her murderous labor. She was, after all, flush with cash, and she had everybody in the neighborhood scared shitless, so she was getting discounts from other purveyors left and right. <laughs> but no, Tilly was either just plain greedy or horny or both, because when husband number two wasn't even yet cold in his grave, Tilly went back to the marriage broker and asked to be set up again. Are they sus at all? or So I don't know if she used the marriage broker for number two. So. If she didn't, then she just went back to this marriage broker and probably pretended that it was just her first husband who had died after all of those years. Yeah. In late 1914, the marriage broker introduced her to another Joe, Joseph Grantkowski. Now, I feel like this was not an ideal fit for either one of them. For the first thing, Joe number three had specifically requested that he would like a good-looking woman to be his future wife. Yep. And Tilly was definitely not a looker. So the broker who set them up told him, eh, she's not that good-looking like you wanted. But you know what's attractive? Her bank account. She's bumping. And she's a great cook. So with those two things combined, it basically makes her a 10. So deal with it. Although <laughs> I don't think this guy was like winning any beauty awards himself. So everybody can chill out. And so Tilly also, like, was into this guy, but not really because he, A, did not have a life insurance policy. Oh, and gross. B, <laughs> how dare he? And number two, you know, when they're courting, she's like, so are you, uh, are you interested in getting one? I mean, I hear they have great rates, these grays, all these, like, benefits. He's like, nah, I don't believe in that scam. You know, we're not doing it. I'm not doing it. And so she's like, shit. So... They continued dating for whatever reason, and it sounded like a disaster. 
And usually Tilly was pretty good at getting guys to marry her for whatever reason, as you'll see in future relationships. But she could not get this guy to budge. She could not get him to get a life insurance policy. She eventually took him to Milwaukee on a vacation with her murder profits. And this trip went very poorly because Tilly tried to blackmail Joe number three into marrying her by telling him that she would report him for violating the Man Act if he didn't immediately wed her. The Man Act? So the Man Act was a law that criminalized American men taking it was usually at this point specifically European immigrants, but really any immigrants across state lines for sexual purposes. Wow. And this was passed in 1910 to combat sexual trafficking. Great act, necessary. But Tilly, I don't think, had been naturalized. She was born in Poland. So I don't know if at this point she was a full American citizen. Also, till the end of her life, she mostly spoke. Polish. So she had a poor-ish command of the um, English language, and she spoke with a very, very heavy Polish accent. So she basically set this vacation up knowing that if they went to Milwaukee and had sex, she could then accuse him of the Man Act and probably get him prosecuted. Oh, my God. So it was all a trick. So Joe, number three, though, was not having it. He's like, I'm going to call your bluff. F this shit. I'm leaving. And they ended up going back to Chicago early after that failed ultimatum slash blackmail. And shockingly, they still kept dating after this. Apparently, Joe number three just did not know how to shake her. He thought that after that huge fight they got into, she would just kind of like go away, maybe try to find a new guy. But she didn't. She just kept showing up. And at that point, (laughs) some people who are close to Joe did know her reputation and the fact that earlier that year, two of her husbands had already passed away. And so people started telling him, I don't know, I think you need to break it off, number one. But if you don't break it off, at least don't eat or drink anything she gives you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sadly for Joe, he did not listen. And apparently she didn't just poison men. She was equal opportunity. Because when Joe number three's sister, Stell, got into an argument with Tilly, Tilly was in a rage. But then the next day, she seemed to have a change of heart. She came to Stell. She apologized profusely. And she gave her some delicious arsenic-laced candies as way of an apology. So poor Stell got devastatingly ill, but miraculously survived. Uh, what? She survived. And I think that's because unlike her paramours whom she poisoned over a long period of time. That was kind of a one and done candy thing. Yeah. She was testing out the candies. It was new on the market. Yeah. Like I think if it had been a kid, lower body weight, she might've knocked him off. But I think Stella was, yeah, Stella was a sturdy gal. So she was okay. That's right. She already got one Stella earlier. So yes, she already did. So yeah, Stell was fine, but Joe number three did not heed the warnings to not eat her beef stew, and he became the third man that Tilly buried in 1914 alone. Wow. And the crazy thing about this one is that I do not believe that she got a cent from Joe number three's estate after the murder, so apparently that one was just for funsies. I imagine that. I think he pissed her off enough. 
That one was revenge for not yeah. marrying her. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So three men that she was involved with all die in one calendar year in this relatively close community of Little Poland. So how the hell was she getting away with this? Well, during the years that Tilly was actively killing, Chicago faced three nearly consecutive epidemics. They had cholera, then tuberculosis, and then finally influenza. So there was just a ton of people dying left and right of natural causes. Yep. And at this point, you know, being a pathologist or a medical examiner was certainly not as technically advanced as it is today. So when somebody came in with what looked like the same causes or symptoms that one of these other epidemics would cause, they were like, yeah, sure, that's it, probably. So yeah, that's, I think, why she was getting away with it. Also, we are coming up on, and and for most of her killing, we're in prohibition era at this point, I think. So there was another issue, which is a lot of people were drinking very, very cheap moonshine. Oh, gross. And previously... Because they wanted to try to get people to not drink industrial alcohol, they had specifically put toxins and chemicals in it that made it, you know, still useful for its primary use, but deterred people from drinking it. But during Prohibition, people started figuring out how to repurify it or try to remove the toxins so they were able to make it at least part of the ingredient, the base ingredient in their moonshine. Now, this did not always work. So a lot of people were also dying from moonshine poisoning. She started putting arsenic in the moonshine of her paramours. So she figured if she couldn't pass it off as some illness, that she could just be like, oh, that fucking alcoholic. It's I told him not to drink that dirty moonshine, but here he is. And that's what happened to him. Tilly took a little break from matrimony for the next six years, but she didn't take a break from murder. In 1915, her 15-year-old cousin Helen passed away while in Tilly's care. And Helen was reportedly the sibling of those two other young people that Tilly had already murdered. So what kind of parents are sending their third child to this woman after two of their kids have already died? Yeah. And I don't really know how Tilly became the person in the family that everybody sent their sick to. I think maybe there was that Sheptua thing. You know, these women were supposed to be like medicine women in folklore. Like they had healing powers and premonition powers. Yeah. I think it sounds like she was trying to bolster both of those reputations. So she took care of lots of people who were feeling ill but it sounded like they didn't all survive. So I don't know why people kept sending their sick to her. So we have these three cousins. I guess you've already counted two. Now there's a new one. And while those three cousins became victims, one cousin allegedly became Tilly's partner in crime. (gasps) This is her accomplice. Anelia Rinkowski, who was nicknamed Nellie, so we got Tilly and Nellie. Of course we do. Was born two years after Tilly, and the two were extremely close. Nellie married her first husband, Albert, in 1893, and she would go on to birth 11 children. Oh, my God. However, not all of those children made it to adulthood, and many believe it wasn't just run-of-the-mill pestilence that killed them. 
1914, the same year that Tilly started knocking off husbands, Nellie experienced some mysterious losses as well. She ended up having a relatively late-in-life pregnancy, which was a surprise for her because her last son had been born, I think, like six years ahead, and she already had nine children. Yep. And it ended up being twins. So these were not particularly wanted twins, as it had been a surprise pregnancy, And so she did name the little girl Sophia and the little boy Benjamin, but they mysteriously died at only three and four months, respectively. Nellie sent her 13-year-old daughter Lillian to live with Tilly for a year, and when the girl returned, she was deeply, deeply sick. She eventually did die, and they believed that it had something to do with her heart, Well, exhumation would later prove that it was a weakened heart condition, but the heart condition came from being poisoned on a regular basis for a very long time. So not a natural heart condition. It was not a natural heart condition. Wow. Jesse, do you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I have always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. I tell you what, Jesse, every day is different as a business owner, and there are new obstacles and challenges that we have to overcome and figure out solutions for, and Shopify always has our back. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. Okay, so we're at 11 maybe? Do you think that they killed the twins? I think that they killed the twins. Yeah, so we're at 11. So at this point, after Albert's death, their son, John, also got very, very sick and he did shockingly recover. So he managed to survive and he actually went to the authorities and said, I think my mother poisoned my dad and is trying to poison me. But at that point, I don't think he was taken seriously or like they didn't end up investigating it. They're like, whatever, people die all the time, chill out. So John just did a lot of distance from his mother at that point. So it seems reasonable to believe at this point that Tilly was sharing her tips for dealing with pesky husbands and children with her favorite cousin. By 1920, Tilly was fresh out of murder money and she had to get a job. 
Sad, Tilly. So sad. Don't you hate it when you run out of all of your misbegotten life insurance money and you have to go get a job like everyone else? She began working at a factory, and it was there that she met husband number three, Frank Kupchik. So this is our first non-Joe. Frank had been married before, and he had six children. He was described as friendly and easygoing. And those who knew the couple said that they did seem very, very genuinely in love. Frank was apparently very sweet, and he doted on Tilly, and she, in turn, loved to cook for him and always made sure he had a hot supper when he came home from work. The two were, in fact, so taken with each other that they ended up getting married in 1921 after only five days of courtship. Despite the rom-com-like speed of the courtship, the couple faced issues early on. Apparently, a big fight broke out at their wedding, and it was one of Tilly's cousins, a Rose Chidzinski, who allegedly picked a fight with both Tilly and her new beau, although history has lost why. We don't know what the issue was. But Tilly was really, really pissed that her cousin had tried to ruin her wedding. But again, like somebody else before her, she was angry at the wedding. But in the days that followed the wedding, she actually did go and apologize to Rose and bring her some treats to say, I'm sorry. Only a week or two after the wedding, Rose fell ill and passed away. Now that, Andy, is a bridezilla. If you guys are worried because you have to wear a really bad bridesmaid dress, maybe they're doing like destination parties everywhere. Maybe they're like doing it in the, somewhere in their bachelor party and there's shower and then their wedding and then blah, there's blah, blah, penis blah. straws and there's... <laughs> yes. And your friend's getting all crazy. At least you're alive. The bride didn't kill you. So after marrying, the couple moved into a nice apartment off North Winchester Avenue, and Tilly once again became a stay-at-home wife. Over the first couple months that they were married, the couple established a daily rhythm. Frank would get up in the morning, and he would leave at 6 a.m. to work in the factory, and then he would return sometime in the late afternoon to Tilly having supper on the table for him. The apartment overlooked a cemetery, though, and a grave digger made allegations that he had seen a man who was not Frank coming and going from Tilly and Frank's apartment routinely, and that one day he had even spied Tilly and this mystery man making out. <gasps> so he started telling people in the community that she was up to no good, and Tilly immediately apparently covered all of her windows with newspaper so that the grave digger could no longer see into her apartment. But she also decided to hasten Frank's earthly departure lest he find out about her infidelity and dump her before she can get the murderous payout. So within only a couple months of their vows, Frank, too, became very ill. Tilly took to wearing all black in mourning even before he was deceased. And she was even caught by her landlady knitting her mourning cap for Frank's funeral while he was still alive and she was sitting at his bedside. <laughs> So the landlady was not into this. She was also very superstitious, and she knew that 
like this wasn't a prediction. This is like you are casting an omen, like saying yeah. like they're going to die. You know, you're basically wishing it for them. And so she was a little offended when she caught Tilly, like, talking to Frank, being like, I'm making my murder hat for your funeral. And the landlady's like, isn't this presumptuous? Like, he's still alive. He's right here. He can hear us. Like, why are you knitting your funeral cap in front of him? And Tilly was like, no, 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 no. I know. It's so sad. It's very sad. But he knows. I know. We all know he's going to die. So we've moved past it. Frank's like, what? So she started telling all of their neighbors, like, go, come say goodbye to Frank. You know, he's got three days left. You know, she even went out and purchased a coffin before he was dead. And she was bragging to everybody that she got such a great deal on it. The coffin was only $30. Oh, my God. Why did she get such a good deal? I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. But her landlady wouldn't let her bring it in the house. She wanted to like bring it up to their apartment and have it sitting in like their house, like next to Frank. And the landlady was like, no, this is so inappropriate. And she had to find somewhere else to store it because the landlady wouldn't let it in her building. I mean, I feel like they don't normally go in like buildings. They usually are at the funeral home and then in the cemetery. Did they have funeral homes in like 1921? I don't know, but like, I don't think you like bring the coffin into the house. (laughs) She was also, okay, this is, guys, this is, I think, the worst part. So she was waking up every single day and she would say something to Frank every morning, like, good morning, you're going to die soon. (laughs) Greetings, won't be long now. Like every day to this poor guy who was suffering greatly. So she predicted his death would occur on April 25th, 1921. and. Poor Frank did die on that exact day. Her landlady, who I think really hated her, also reported later that she caught Tilly celebrating on the day of his death by gleefully playing the Victrola and blasting loud jazz music. Okay. Rocking out to jazz after her husband dies. It's rude. Ruthless. Frank's cause of death was ruled bronchial pneumonia. She wore her murder hat at the funeral, and it must have been quite the fetching chapeau because it was at Frank's funeral that she met husband number four, our last Joe, Joe Climac. So Joe number four, he was a quiet 51-year-old widower and divorcee who was simply looking for a nice wife who would make a nice home. He just wanted a relaxing twilight years. Tilly was more than adept at cooking, sewing, and keeping a clean house, so Joe thought that he had found just the woman for him. They were married in 1921, very soon after Frank was in the ground. And and this guy was friends with Frank, so he knew what had happened to him. Though friends and family reported that the couple initially appeared happy, there was one big sticking point when they first got together. Joe had two large dogs that he absolutely adored, and he insisted that they live in the house with the couple. And this was an era where sometimes dogs, I think, you know, had dog houses or lived outdoors. And so Tilly hated dogs. And she didn't want these big, messy mutts around. So they got into a huge fight about whether or not the dogs were going to live inside or outside. And Joe stuck to his guns and he actually won. He said, my dogs aren't going anywhere, which is good for you, Joe. 
Well, Tilly said, I can work around that and fed them some poisoned table scraps and the sweet pooches were not long for this world. Yeah. So did he really win? So he lost. Yeah. I think the moral of the story is don't fight with Tilly. Yeah. She'll poison you or someone you love for sure. I think at this point, I'd be like, I think I'm out. I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure you did something to my dogs. But he stuck with her. And I think that she didn't kill him right away because he did not have a life insurance policy for a very long time. And after a year of marriage, she finally convinced him to get a nice sizable one. And only weeks after that, he began to get extremely ill. Oh. So I think that her cruelty was just getting more extreme as she got away with more and more because I hadn't heard of her mocking any of her other husbands except for Frank. But she also would do the same thing with our last Joe. She'd be like, well, I think you're pretty near dead now. And didn't I tell you that you're going to die soon? Those were like direct quotes of things she would say to him. (laughs) Now, Joe's brother was visiting him. And Joe was very, very, very ill. It was clear that something was devastatingly wrong. And Tilly would not let him go to a doctor or have a doctor make a house call. Now, this brother already didn't like Tilly, already didn't trust her. He knew about Frank. He knew about the dogs. He was putting two and two together here. And he basically insisted that a doctor come over. And Tilly was screaming and she was saying, no, I'm not going to let a doctor into my house. I'm taking care of him. He's doing fine. And eventually the brother called the doctor and basically was like, I'll break the door down. If you don't, I'm going to call the police because this is negligence. So let me come in. Yeah. So the doctor was allowed to come in. After two visits, the doctor concluded that Joe had been poisoned with arsenic. Oh, snap Tilly. Yeah, and he's still alive. So he was taken to the hospital where the doctor's suspicions were confirmed. In fact, the doctors at the hospital believed that with the amount of arsenic that had been found in his body, the clear duration of the poisoning and the fact that his symptoms were really, really bad. He was on a long road to recovery. It was possible that he would potentially be crippled for life because of what Tilly did to him. Oh, my goodness. Obviously, Joe's brother immediately called the police. They interviewed Joe. They interviewed the doctors. And they went over to arrest Tilly. Tilly did not take her arrest lying down. She reportedly put up a massive fight, physically assaulted the officers, and refused to leave her apartment. They had to call in backup just to get this middle-aged Polish poisoner out of her apartment. It allegedly took seven, like, big buffy officers to pull her kicking and screaming out of the building and load her into the police vehicle, at which point she looked at one of the arresting officers and said, the next person I'm going to make dinner for is you. (laughs) I don't think you're going to have access to your poison kitchen, lady. So, sorry. So, right away, Tilly narked on Cousin Nelly, like, right off the get. (gasps) Really? Yeah. Yeah, she's like, I don't even know what this stuff was. I was trying to get revenge on my husband for fooling around on me with all these other women. And, you know, my Cousin Nelly gave me this white powder and said, you know, put it in his food. It'll teach him a lesson. And I just thought, you know, it'd be 
something that might hurt him a little. I didn't think it would kill him. I just thought maybe he'd learn his lesson. So Nellie had by now remarried and the guy was still alive, surprisingly. So the police went and arrested her as well. While she was in custody, an anonymous letter arrived suggesting that the police exhume the body of Albert because they were sure that he too had been poisoned to death. So in Tilly's house, the police found what ended up being the source of the poison that Tilly seemed to have vast quantities of it. It was a popular brand of pest killer called Rough on Rats. <laughs> Rough on Rats was almost entirely made out of arsenic with just a little bit of coal added for color. So you could buy unlimited boxes of this stuff at any corner pharmacy. Yep. So it was like she could have as much as she wanted. And at the time, it was believed that if rats detect anything odd about the food and the poison, that they won't eat it. So they thought that if it smelled funny, if it tasted weird, that the rat would be deterred and it wouldn't work, which is is not the case. Rats are not easily deterred from food. So it was an odorless and tasteless killing machine. So when she put it in her beef stew, it basically just disappeared. The person eating it would have no idea. Rough on rats. Rough on rats. Arsenic got a brilliant nickname during this era. They called it inheritance powder. So the unregulated and widely distributed powder was purchased by murderers and those who were suicidal alike alongside those who really did just want to kill some rats. Tilly's method involved slowly poisoning her victims over weeks at a time so the person would fall ill and then she could pretend to heal them and nurse them back into health while she was continuing to make them sick. So acute cases of poisoning might start with headaches, confusion, severe diarrhea, vomiting, and then it gets continually more gnarly. <laughs> Eventually, the person basically just vomits blood and convulses terribly until they're... Sounds so bad. Ugh, it's disgusting and it's painful and it's confusing. And, you know, we talk a lot about all of these violent deaths. And I think that there's like this feeling that like poisoning is somehow not as bad. But she was watching her victims suffer and taunting them. I mean, shooting somebody is terrible, but it's like, boom, you're done. I mean, to sit by their bedside and watch your handiwork and keep doing it is psychopathic. Like spoon feeding them more. Very, very, very sick. So Tilly at this point, after she tried to like throw her cousin under the bus, then said, you know, I think that this is just a misunderstanding. If you just let me talk to Joe in the hospital, he's going to drop the charges and we're going to go on our merry way and everything's going to be fine. You guys don't have to arrest me. And this is clearly a, a very bad idea to let this murderer see her victim, intended victim again. Uh, but for some reason, the police thought that maybe if she saw Joe and saw him in the hospital and saw how much he was suffering, 
the guilt would cause her to finally confess or Joe would get her to confess somehow. So even though this seems like a terrible idea, they allowed Tilly to go to the hospital to visit Joe. Now, naturally, they did not understand that Tilly was a psychopath, so she wasn't going to feel anything at all, you know, resembling guilt, because psychopathy was had already been discovered and coined at this point, but mostly in Germany. And it was already making its way to, you know, psychiatric doctors in the United States, but it was not something that law enforcement knew about at this point. And it would take gosh, decades, I think, for them to believe that women could be psychopaths as well. So just like a psychopath would, she waltzed right into that hospital room and she tried to act like everything was totally normal. She went up to him. She planted a big kiss on his face. She's like, oh, baby, when you coming home? Joe was like, oh, no. Oh, no, I am not having this. He denounced their marriage. He exclaimed on her wickedness and he praised God that she had been found out for her devilish ways. And then Tilly with a totally straight face said, oh, Joe, they're not treating you right here. You just really don't seem like yourself. Why don't you just come on home with me and I'll take care of you and I'll make you better. I'll fix you your favorite beef stew. (laughs) Doesn't that sound delicious? He was so pissed. Apparently, he got so worked up that he had to call a nurse to get him a glass of water so that he could compose himself because he was so angry. And now the police are in this room as well. And when he asked this nurse for a glass of water, Tilly turned to her and said, if he makes any trouble for you, take a two by four and hit him over the head with it. Oh, my God. Needless to say... Joe was still interested in pressing charges and not interested in reuniting with Tilly. Tilly was locked back up and the bodies of her husbands were exhumed to be tested for arsenic. Kelsipri's, all of them, had fatal amounts of arsenic in their bodies, as did Nellie's husband, Albert, and then this case is very sad, One of Nellie's daughters also came forward and said that she had gotten into a really bad fight with her mother at one point. And after that, apparently Nellie took care of her daughter, so Nellie's granddaughter, while she worked. And she said that after this blowout fight, in the weeks after that, her daughter died. Oh, my God. So now that this is all being revealed, she asked for them to exhume her child as well. And that child also had arsenic in her body. Oh, you can't just go around poisoning everyone. It's terrible. So also, now this is crazy because apparently Tilly, see these, we don't know about these deaths, but apparently Tilly was fond of giving kids candy and sometimes they died. If anyone in the neighborhood fought with her, she would give them something and they would die. So at this point, there was like a whole community of people that were going to the police and begging them to exhume their loved ones because they believed that their loved ones had been a victim of either Tilly or Nellie. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, it became overwhelming to the point that for, you know, reasons that they weren't unable to, they already had way enough to prove that these two women were murderers. And, you know, it's not a pretty process and pretty costly to exhume and test bodies, especially in the 1920s. 
So yeah, they were unable to honor all of those requests, but there was like a whole list of people who were like, please, 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 can you find out? So yeah. At this point, there were also two other female distant relatives of Nellie and Tilly, like some sort of third or fourth cousins that were also arrested in suspicion that they had poisoned their husbands to death. Oh, my God. So this is like a poisoning ring. I feel like at this point, they should have renamed that Rough on Husbands. Rough on Husbands. Rough on Rascals. Tilly and her cousin were not the only women taking advantage of this get-out-of-marriage powder. In the last couple years before Tilly's arrest, there had been 28 women just in Cook County that had been arrested for potentially poisoning their husbands. Wow. Yep. And only four of those 28, though, had been found guilty. So the odds are good for Tilly at this point, but this ended up being a much more sensational case because of the whole psychic element and her claims of mysticism and just the craziness of having the balls to pretend to be a psychic and then kill your victims yeah. <laughs> after you called it. Like, like acting as if it's like when you, you know, you call your shot playing pool or something or like your basket. Like how casually she did this. <laughs> and for I, apparently some sort of like mystical clout, people were aghast with her. So this became kind of a media circus. I think there was also the element that the newspapers were reporting that she might be the ringleader of a whole poisoning gang. And the headlines were like, watch out, husbands, they're going to poison you. So prosecutors decided to just focus on Frank, because at this point we have Joe who's alive. And then apparently there was she was increasing. She was escalating with every husband. So there was like X amount found in her first one, more in her second, more in the third guy she poisoned. And then with four, Frank, apparently she had done him real dirty with that dose. And I think it's also because she was afraid to be found out about her cheating. Okay. So she probably hit him with a little bit more than she usually did. Yep. But that resulted in him having an amount of arsenic in his body that was very unnatural. And at this point in history, arsenic was still in everything. It was in makeup. It was in baby formula. They were using arsenic in all of these different things. I mean, it was also in the water or the soil and, you know, they used it in embalming. So there's a million ways that a defense attorney could argue that arsenic got into a corpse's body. But the amount that Frank had, no doctor could say got there naturally, which is why they chose him to be the murder case. So Tilly's trial began in 1923. And Andy, she wore her knitted murder cap to the trial. Stop it. It's her good luck hat. I mean, it does have... Like kind of let's let's make this full circle. She was knitting it for Frank at his bedside while she killed him. Then she wore it to the funeral and it became her lucky hat because she, you know, met Joe there. And so, of course, she had to uh, hope that it still brought her luck and it got her acquitted when she wore the jaunty cap to the trial. Please tell me we have pictures of this cap. 
there's a one famous photo of Tilly that everybody uses, which will probably be the cover on our Instagram. But she's wearing almost like a men's style hat, like with a brim. So I, I don't think it can be that. But I'm going to look for other pictures so I can find this knitted cap that she was wearing. So the newspapers reported that Tilly was completely unmoved and unshaken by the events of the trial. She laughed at the prosecutor's attempts at pronunciation of Polish names. And there's like still a lot of misogyny here as well as like anti-immigrant sentiment because the newspapers were like, ah, she's clearly too dim-witted a woman to understand the legal terms being bandied about. So she's just blank and bored. But author Charlize Ellis says it's much more likely that Tilly's just a psychopath. So she doesn't care what's going on. She's like, I'm bored because this isn't exciting for me. And I don't really care what happens. And even if you find me guilty, I don't feel bad about what I did. So eh. Joe number four was naturally the star witness. But there was also a veritable parade of neighbors and relatives who testified to her bizarre psychic skills, the dead animals in the neighborhood, her chilly coldness towards her dying husband's, and how she had even bragged to everyone about the great deal she got on Frank's coffin before he was dead. Now, Tilly's defense isn't terrible, to be honest. I mean, I do not know how you combat all of that testimony and the insane amount of arsenic that is found in his body. But she tried to say, she got on the stand herself, and she tried to say that Frank was an alcoholic and that it was the moonshine that killed him, obviously. Somebody had put arsenic in the moonshine, clearly, and it was not her fault. She said, and this is actually not a bad, bad defense. She said, look, all you've proven is that there was arsenic in his body. You cannot prove that I was the one who put it there. Yeah. Get him, Tilly. And in the press, people didn't like Tilly. The news reporters were not nice to Tilly. She was maligned as a murderess, but it seemed like at this time an even worse crime than killing was being ugly. One journalist described Tilly as having a greasy complexion and a lumpy figure, saying that she emitted growls instead of murmurs, and it was clear she knew a crochet needle better than a lipstick. Yet another reporter wrote that she was a squat, peasant-looking woman who looked 55 rather than her 45 years of age. Okay, so rude. So even though the newspapers were being pretty rude about Tilly, she became kind of like a folk hero while in the prison. The other women in the prison loved her. And apparently there was some scant approval and support for her around the country in some women because at this time, women were still very much second-class citizens. Also, I don't even think it was illegal to beat your wife in this era. So I think some of these women were kind of like, you know what, girl, I'm glad you got it. You took care of your business. You do you, Tilly. You take out those baddies. You know, and there was, of course, some speculation that they had done something to deserve it. They had cheated. They had been abusive. There's no truth to that. The truth is that Tilly was just a crazy serial killer. She was certainly not, you know, a folk hero avenging all of womankind. But obviously, they needed someone to embody that. (laughs) They did. And, you know, I do think it's funny because I like telling these older stories with these crazy black widows because we are 
you know, are allowed to have like a little bit more fun with it. And I noticed even in last podcast on the left, I think they said at the end of their episode, like, wow, that was a surprisingly fun episode. And there's a humongous double standard about how we treat male victims, especially when they were murdered, you know, over a hundred years ago, where you're like, oh, Tilly, you're crazy. You're so crazy. You're wild killing all these guys. But if even if it was a guy from the early 1900s, we'd be like, can you believe that fucking asshole, that dickhead killing all of his beautiful, wonderful wives? I mean, it's true. It is true. It is true. Well, Tilly was not as lucky as those other many women who had been acquitted of a similar crime because after 22 hours of deliberation, she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no shot of release ever. Sorry, Tilly. Ye old Elwop. <laughs> yes, I guess at the time that was the harshest prison sentence that a woman had ever received in Chicago. And the prosecutor is actually like gearing for the death penalty, but people were not ready to kill a woman at that point. So Tilly did seem relatively unfazed by the verdict, though she did continue for the rest of her life to strenuously proclaim her innocence. She claimed that everybody in Little Poland and all of her relatives just didn't like her and they had teamed up against her and they had spread lies. So that explains all of the arsenic in all of your husband's bodies because people were telling lies. Yep. They're just lying. Many papers at this time alleged that all of the women who had been acquitted of similar murders were relatively good looking. Well, Tilly and the handful of other female prisoners who were convicted were not so easy on the eyes. They reported this like this was shocking news that good looking people get away with shit. <laughs> Actually, it's like kind of painful. I think I can put this one on the Instagram. I saw in like an old timey newspaper article where they did like illustrations of the women who had been acquitted with their little pretty faces. And they're like, and these people got convicted. Boo. <sighs> rough. Boo. Rough hiss. Back then. It probably also didn't help that at this time it was all male juries. So, you know, they were led by a pretty face or not. So Tilly was remanded back to prison where she would remain for the rest of her life. And for the first year after her trial, she actually got to hang out with her cousin Nellie because Nellie was waiting for her trial to start. And apparently Tilly's favorite thing to do in prison was to just emotionally torture Nellie all of the time. So she would just freak her out constantly. She'd be like, I heard that they're definitely going to kill you. In fact, I think you're, they're not even going to do a trial. I heard the guards say that the plan is to take you out back and just shoot you. And Nellie completely believed her and was so freaked out. And then when she found out she wasn't going to die, when they're really just like, you know, taking her outside or something for recreation, she would like be crying until he would laugh and laugh and laugh and think it was hilarious. So she like played all these cruel jokes on Nellie for the oh entire year God, they were together. She's evil. Evil. That's how she got her kicks. Tilly's a bitch, man. But she did get hers in the end because when Nellie did go to trial, Nellie was acquitted. Whoa. Nellie not guilty. So the difference was... Is that she was pretty? No, no, actually, Nellie was arguably <laughs> worse looking okay, than okay, Tilly. Okay. 
So that was that. This was not a beauty contest win. I got to tell you guys. Okay. I'll put up. There's pictures of Nelly too. I have, so I'll, I'll make sure they go on the Instagram and Facebook. But yeah, they said actually that there was less arsenic in her husband Albert's body, and that's who they had selected to be the murder victim for the trial. And there was some reasonable doubt that it could be in the soil around where he'd been buried, or it had just been the embalming fluid. So they had enough of a case there that the jury did not feel they could convict it just on the evidence of her connection to the famous poisoner Tilly and the arsenic found in his body. Okay. So yeah, Nellie got away with murder because I would 100% believe Nellie killed those people. Oh yeah. Author Charlize Ellis tries to answer the question of why Tilly killed at all in her book, which I think, you know, if you're interested in true crime, we always look for why? What is what happens to people? What's going on in their mind? What happened in their life? And number one, we don't really know what Tilly's early life was like. Yeah, and of so there might have been some sort of abuse. I was, I don't know if it was the last podcast I left or it was Charlie's Ellis's book, but one of them was saying the one thing that male and female serial killers do have in common is that there usually is a lot of violence and generally also sexual abuse in both of their early childhoods, whether you're female or male. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Obviously for Tilly, she killed for money. That was a huge motivation, but it certainly did not seem to be the only reason. It seemed like Tilly really did get off on the whole process. She enjoyed watching them get sick. She enjoyed pretending to care for them. She liked the attention she got from the neighborhood. And so Charlize Ellis said that she would posit that it wasn't just, you know, being a comfort killer for money. It was also a power control thing tinged with a little Munchausen by proxy because she liked to look like the person nursing them. And then I think she was like obsessed with the power too that it gave her in the community as well, like you were saying. Yes, she loved that. She loved being known for something. In legend, Tilly became known as Mrs. Bluebeard as well as the High Priestess of Poisoners which involved the theory that she was the ringleader on that group of women just going after their husbands and poisoning them left and right. However, those other two women were released and they were not charged with any deaths. I'm not sure. They might have exhumed their husbands and there wasn't arsenic or they just weren't involved. So I think it was just Tilly and Nellie. So Tilly spent 13 years in prison before she died on November 20th, 1936, when she was 59 years old. To this day, we do not know how many people she actually murdered. Andy, what is the end of our Tilly tally? If we're not including Nellie, then we're at 11. Okay. And how many did Nellie get? Four. I have her husband, the twins, and then another kid. Okay. Then I think we landed on 15 total. Between the two of them. Between the Between the two of them. So I think this is a Pretty wild tale. Pretty important. In conclusion, if you're on a first date and the person is way too interested on your feelings on life insurance policies or whether you have one, run, don't walk away from them, and certainly do not marry them. Also, this is just like a lesson for life. Do not eat the beef stew. Period. Says the vegan. Don't eat the beef stew, guys. 
simple, simple solution. Hey, she poisoned some candy too. So, you know, stay away from the sugar and the meat, guys, if you really want to live long. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one accurately predicts your death. I uh, love you guys so much. I hope we got a chance to meet some of you at CrimeCon, which is over by now. So if we did, hi. Thanks so much for saying hi. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.